So this is today. Today is yesterday and tomorrow is also today. You traveled through time to the present. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you get how time travel works. It's like we're stuck. You know, like a like a needle on a scratch record. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. It's a thing where the same day keeps happening. Time. in a damn time loop or something well it's groundhog day again and that must mean that i'm robert eg black and this is the groundhog day project minute by minute guess you could call it take two we should be confused there's no time loop of the week this week because the time loop of the week this week is the show itself we're starting over at minute one trying a different approach less scripted more chaos You'll see what I mean, because right now I have multiple files open, three PDFs, couple Word files, several tabs in my browser, and that's today's show. Oh, plus a couple post-its with things scribbled, because why not? (sighs) Starting with this. Before we even get into minute one, I go to grab my copy of Ryan Gilby's, um, what is this, publisher, BFI Publishing, Groundhog Day book. Which is kind of his little introduction about the movie and then goes through the movie kind of scene by scene with some basic analysis stuff. Um, I've referenced it, I'm pretty sure in the podcast before. I definitely referenced it in the, in the blog and it will come up again and again because <laughs> I'm being interrupted because I'm trying to get the commentary track off the DVD and I think Sean German just got it for me. And if you know Sean German, because you've heard the show before, he was a guest a couple times already and is one of the guests whose episodes you might never hear unless I get to the editing them because I have some free time, maybe spring break. He was also one of the co-hosts of Groundhog Minute, which is the first podcast I was on because of my blog and what drew me into the Movies by Minutes approach to doing podcasts about movies. And so he's responsible for this chaos. And he's sending me messages on Facebook right now. Where was I? Macbeth. Yeah, so I go to pull the BFI Groundhog Day book off of my shelf. But it's kind of dark in this corner. There's no light pointed at the shelf. And so I grab a narrow book that's dark, thinking it's that one. And it's an unopened, brand new copy of Macbeth. Tucked in between... What is that? Tucked in between the myth of Sisyphus and the sound and the fury, which sound and the fury and Macbeth being next to each other makes sense, but I don't know why they are on the shelf in between my Groundhog Day related books and my screenplay related books. So I don't know why I have a copy of Macbeth sitting up there. Was it a Groundhog Day reference? Was it a time loop reference? Is there some line from the sound and fury? I don't know. And so it's a weird mystery for this morning. But so I go to Google. Are there quotes from Macbeth that might be related to time? And I find on nosweatshakespeare.com, basically significant Macbeth quotes. And one of the first, like the third, fourth one down on the row. King Duncan, Act 1, Scene 2. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not. I don't think that is why I had Macbeth on that shelf, but it is so apt. Because that is 
the whole thing here. It's like the two wolves, you know, you probably heard some version of that myth. Uh, it supposedly comes from various indigenous American tribes, or I don't know where all they say that comes from. But usually the version, you know, there's two wolves inside of you. There's the dark one and the light one. And the one that takes over is the one that you feed, you know. That even goes down to, uh, was that Plato's chariot? Which I wrote a whole paper I had published on. The charioteer with the, with the two horses. One that pulls up, one that pulls down. And you have to choose which one you sort of drive. But that goes down to this whole story, Groundhog Day, and a lot of time loop stories. Not all of them, because the more science fiction-oriented ones are often about the science fiction aspect and the thing that is causing the loop itself. So it's more plot-driven. When they're character-driven, yeah, the theme is usually character has to improve himself in order to get out of the loop. And the standards are somewhat arbitrary. You know, in I, I tell my students, we were talking about time loops just a few weeks ago, and I was referencing... I guess this is my time loop of the week. I'll pause because I might choose to insert the time loop of the week music here. Who knows? Most of life is just junk, right? It's, it's filler. And then there's these moments when all the randomness turns into something perfect. It's like life's dropping all the bullshit just for a second to show us how amazing it could be all the time if it wanted to. Hmm. I don't know. I think maybe we're supposed to become, like, better people. Though I honestly don't even know how that could be possible. Never think about it. We must miss so many of them. All those tiny perfect things are just poof, gone. Lost forever. But not today. That is a disturbingly inspirational idea, Mark. It's a perfect day. You couldn't plan a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. last revision is what counts apparently what if we found them all all the perfect things in this one town in this one day time of the week is we can collect them happy death day because of a very particular detail she has to make a list of the people who might be killing her and i'm like if you have to make a list of the people who might be trying to kill you you are the problem no one should have an enemies list where they have to check off people one by one after investigating them. If you have that many people that might want you dead, there's probably something wrong with you because you are, you know, you're true from Happy Death Day or you're Phil from Groundhog Day. Where it's not just that you have to improve because it's a good idea. It's you have to improve because nobody likes you. People are putting up with you because you're good at your job. But that's not good enough in the long run. You need more than that. Before we get to minute one, a little bit on how the original started. Danny Rubin's original starts with a fade-in on the close-up of a clock. We're already in media res as the clock changes from 6.29 to 6.30. So, different time than they use in the movie, and really the movie should be earlier. It should probably be 5 or 5.30, given that uh, the Groundhog Day Festival usually happens just as the sun is coming up, because that's the point. You want the low shadow coming out, or the low sun angle, so that you would get shadows. Because that's the point. It's Groundhog scene. We'll get more into the details of the science of the midwinter and Groundhog Day in bulk candle mass and all that later when we get to them pulling the groundhog out of the stump. We're not there yet. We're minute one. 
Minute one, our only visual is fast-moving clouds on a blue sky. But the original script starts with him waking up. We find out as it goes that he's in a loop. There's a lot of voiceover to explain that. We'll talk a lot about that. So then, jump forward. The first revision doesn't really exist. That would be Danny Rubin correcting his own script before, like, basically to submit it. Even he told me in the interview, go back to minute one the first time. I asked him about that, and basically it's not really available. And so what we have are the second revision, the third revision, and the final revision, all done with the help of, or help of, the co-writing credit of Harold Ramis, and the help of, if you want to, if you want to say it, Bill Murray, because he had a lot of input into, especially the final revision, and then some scenes that didn't end up in the movie, like the jilted girlfriend at the newsroom that was written after the fact. I don't think it's still in the screenplay, but maybe it is. We'll get to it when we get to it. But what I wanted to tell you about before we get into the actual minute one and before we get into the philosophy in this episode gets way longer than I want it to be because I don't want to have to do a lot of editing, but oh well. We'll start long, we'll start big, let you know what the show's going to be. This is from the third revision, which is, I think, basically identical to the second revision as far as this opening sequence. We fade in on hibernating groundhogs in their burrow. Roll credits and theme music. Exterior, a forest clearing early morning. The crest of an old snowfall still covers the frozen ground and the bare icy branches of the tree glisten dully in the early... I haven't actually seen a lot of screenplays that really describe their establishing shots like this. I don't think. But that's fine. Then we cut to interior TV studio. So basically what we get in the eventual film, even though that wasn't in the final version of the script, that it was going to start like this. Phil Connor standing in front of a blank green wall, gesticulating animatedly at some invisible images on the wall, talking a mile a minute, MOS, that is mit on sound, which means we wouldn't hear him. So probably the credits and theme music are going over this whole section. He looks completely crazy as he points at nothing and winks to an unseen audience. Cut to exterior western Pennsylvania, same time credits continue as we streak across the winter landscape, flying over fields and farms, small towns and hamlets, railroad lines and interstates, coal yards and factories. Yeah, they weren't going to be filming this on the budget they had until we cross the Allegheny River and follow it to the southwest. We do get that shot in the film, but not to a few minutes from now. Then cut to interior TV studio at the same time. Phil continues pointing out features on the blank wall, but from a new angle, we can see that he's looking at the monitor out of the corner of his eye, which shows the chroma key insert he's pointing to, a national weather map. But we'll talk more about that next time, because we don't get there this minute. We get clouds. We get sky. We do get dialogue. Because we get Phil talking. Yeah, the final revision starts with the downtown skyline of Pittsburgh, so also later. We'll come back to that. We get the clouds. We get the, in the voiceover, we get, um, not the voiceover, the, the uh, commentary track. We get Harold Ramis basically telling us already that this was a reshoot, even though we're not in the scene yet at this until the very end of this minute. Or, actually, we're not visually in there until the next minute, but he does start saying it before. This audio is from the reshoots. It was a couple months after they finished principal photography when they had to go back and film uh, framing, you know, beginning. Because they needed it. I mean, structurally, you need to know what Phil is like before. Him telling us the thing. I've complained about the voiceover so many times on my blog. Sorry, Danny. I love voiceover. Voiceover can be used fantastically, but I think the problem with Phil is that Since he's already in it, we have no clear indication of what he was like before. 
and that's necessary for this story to work. The other note we get from Danny Rubin is that this music that's playing in minute one is George Fenton going for what he calls a Nino Rota style. Nino Rota, of course, let's see, what is this? I have a tab open for this one from the Kennedy Center describing Italian composer Nino Rota. 1911 to 1979, born into a musical family, a child prodigy, beginning composing at age 8. He studied at several schools, including the Milan Conservatory. When he was 20, he came to the U.S. and studied at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. He then returned to Italy and earned a degree in literature from the University of Milan. Dude. Uh, <laughs> the dude was me, not them. In 1937, he began teaching and subsequently became the director of the Italian Berry Conservatory, a position he held from 1950 until his death in 1979. Rota is best known for his film scores for the Godfather series, for Federico Fellini, including La Strada, La Dolce Vita, and Eight and a Half, and for Franco Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet, and The Taming of the Shrew. Rota won an Oscar for Best Music for the second of the three Godfather films, and previous musical themes from those first two films were used posthumously in the third. The love theme from Romeo and Juliet, probably best known as A Time for Us, became popular worldwide. The most successful version released in the U.S. was Henry Mancini's instrumental rendition, which became a number one hit in 1969. Rota also composed concert works and works for the stage, ballet, and opera. His 1977 opera, The Italian Straw Hat, was presented by the Santa Fe Opera. Wait, Santa Fe? Isn't that where Tanya Rubin lives? Huh. Coincidence. Gotta love a coincidence. So, let's do the dialogue. We're in the interior newsroom while we're hearing sound from the interior newsroom. We're not really there yet. We hear Phil come in, and he says, Somebody asked me today, Phil, if you could be anywhere in the world, where would you like to be? And already, even before we see him, even before we have the scene, even before we know we're in the newsroom, this is personable, and it establishes his name. It's something that's going to matter later as a joke, at least once in in the original script, at several more times, but the fact that he has the same name as the groundhog is important. But also, somebody asked him, if you could be anywhere in the world, where would you like to be? And where does he point? As next minute starts, right, it's not actually in this minute. Let me double check and make sure. Yeah, the end of this minute, he's just finished the question, but we do not see his hand yet. But it is important, before we even get into next minute, the next minute shows us that where he is pointing is a big, blank, blue space. The place where Phil wants to be, even though he doesn't know he wants to be there, it's the place he needs to be, is someplace empty of his usual bullshit. He needs his life reset. And that's what will get him next week. Uh, Or next minute. Well, both. And we're already at 16 minutes, but hey, you're stuck with me. Because I am tempted, I am, to read to you three different entries from the Groundhog Day Project blog. And that's a lot. That's so many words. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. Let's see if I can pick out, pick out some highlights. Or maybe I'll link to them in the 39, 40, and maybe just read you 41. Because I think I really like 41. Oh, see, this is so... No, this is important. This is minute one. This is what matters. <sighs> okay, here's what I'll give you. I think I might call it for minute one. And the next week won't even be minute two yet. It's going to be me reading these three entries. Because these three entries are important. They are like this. Uh, these are days 39, 40, and 41. This is kind of establishing a whole philosophical approach with Nietzsche and eternal recurrence. And it, 
it matters. I might record it right now, but I won't squeeze it all into one episode because I don't want the episodes to be that long. And then we'll get to minute two when we get to minute two. I mean, what's the rush? Through time. What is wrong in the end which never comes? Or which comes again and again. Lap, lap, lapping. Like waves. Since the Big Bang set everything in motion, everything that happens in this universe has to be the way it is. And are you hungry? I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. Particles unfolding the way they're destined to. How do you sleep at night? You've never seen Groundhog Day? Yeah, you know, Groundhog Day is not a documentary. Ah!